it's just to me it's all the same farming is art and art is farming it's all the same it all comes from the same place it's all alchemy it's magic it's the alchemy of putting seeds in the soil and then rain and sun and starlight moonlight photosynthesis it's such a magical concept and in art at least the plant dies which all come from seeds and soil it's all the same thing it's all the same to me You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty-gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. I want to talk about pimento cheese. Oh, I'm always down to talk about pimento cheese. Yeah, especially this pimento cheese. I've just been enjoying it so much. What do you mean by this? <laughs> pimento cheese that I made, there's a secret, but it's not going to be a secret for long because I'm about to tell everybody <gasps> the difference. Hey, okay. It's the sweet garden peppers that are so prevalent right now in the garden. Oh, the pimento peppers, right? Yeah. I don't know exactly what they're called. I think sometimes they all are called pimento peppers, but there's other small sweet red peppers you could also use. But is that why it's called pimento cheese, technically, as after the pepper? Yeah, I think so. I would say any sweet red pepper will do, I'm guessing. I chopped it up, the red pepper, and with onion and garlic, and I cooked it really slow on the stovetop like really slow and it got almost kind of caramelized with the onions and all the sweetness came out of it and it was just so delicious so then I let it rest a bit yeah and then I grated up the sharp cheddar cheese and my homemade mayonnaise and a little bit of salt I forget what else I put in there the exact recipe actually is in the almanac this week mix it all up and it's just so very, very wonderful. And I've been enjoying it on everything. Tomatoes, bread, eggs, everything. <laughs> yeah, that sounds so good. Pimento cheese is just one of those things that is so good. Such a treat. I got it in my head because my dad, your grandfather, just loves pimento cheese so much. He's 97 years old. He recently had COVID and his appetite was way off. So when I go see him in a couple of weeks, I'm going to take him some of this homemade pimento cheese Aww. and he's going to love it. I know. I have a question. So yeah. pimento cheese is usually, I picture it, it's like bright orange because it's cheddar cheese. But I know that the cheese that you use, you get this like white cheddar cheese from Kerrygold. So is it like white pimento cheese? No, the red peppers color it and give it that orangey color. Oh, yeah. Delicious. Yeah. So folks out there, Go for it. I want to try some of that. Is there some treasure from the garden or the 
farmer's market that you have been really enjoying lately? Well, let's see. We just went yesterday and I just made a really good breakfast hash. With It's really fun to go to the farmer's market on Sunday morning and then come home and make lunch with just ingredients that you just got. Like, yeah, got a good loaf of sourdough bread, eggs, tomatoes, and then I made a hash with potatoes and peppers and onion. I think that's all I put in it. And some like lemon herb salt. Mm, that sounds so good. It was delicious. So super simple. I should make some hash. I actually found some potatoes in the garden yesterday. <laughs> I tend to forget where I plant them and I was digging around and whoo, a bunch of potatoes right there. It was yeah. fun. <laughs> that is fun when you sort of forget what's there and then you find stuff. I think you do that a lot. <laughs> well, what happens is, you know, you plant these things in the spring and there's nothing there and then all this stuff comes around it and it obscures it and then you sort of have to discover it but that's okay it makes it fun yeah it's really fun to find a bunch of potatoes in your garden that you forgot about what could be more fun yeah well this is reminding me of the almanac and all of the fun summer love that's going on there yeah and people posting about what they're finding in their garden and like you said the pimento cheese recipe is up there and I love to encourage listeners who have been here a while, or even if you're brand new and you're just looking for more community in this way, people who like to talk about their garden and slow living and take pictures of sunsets and ask big questions about what's our role in making the planet a better place, then the Almanac, I think the Almanac's for you. So all you have to do is go to ladyfarmer.com slash community and join us there. And all of these conversations are continued there and we ask questions and we meet once a month and we're reading this really great book right now called How to Do Nothing. Have you started it, Mom? Pop quiz. I have not because I just today finished the book I was reading. Okay. I just read Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. Mm. Really reminded me of why I was an English major in college. <laughs> that book is so good. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I'm really sad it's over and I'm really not very happy about the way it ended. So anybody out there, if you want to talk about it and sort of process how that ended, yeah, it's kind of bugging me. <laughs> yeah, I really, really loved reading that book in school. Well, How to Do Nothing, I'm really excited for you to start it and I'm really excited to chat about it. It's kind of paradigm shifting. Oh, I can't wait. I look forward to it. Maybe I'll start it tonight. Yeah. Who do we have today, Mom? Ah, today we have Sarah Biscoglia of Farm and Folk. She is an organic farmer and a natural dyer and a quilt artist. So Farm and Folk is really a fusion of her work as both a sustainable farmer and a folk artist. She says the colors in her quilts are born of the alchemy of seeds and soil, sunlight and moonlight and water that transforms into plants and trees and roots. And a lot of them she grows and harvests herself and creates her own dyes. This conversation was really fun. We talk about how Sarah and her husband found their way to this lifestyle early on in their marriage. And they've really maintained it throughout the years. I'm talking about this slow living, homesteading lifestyle. She talks all about the challenges of running a farm and raising a family. And she also talks about her evolution as a quilting artist and how her passion for the magic of transferring natural color to natural fibers is a fascination for her that only grows stronger as the years roll by. And she's currently writing a book for Abrams about natural dyes and quilt making. I really love looking at all of her work on Instagram. You know, actually, currently, right now, you know, we, we had a, a lady farmer meeting this morning. And I mentioned that I deleted Instagram off my phone on Saturday, like my personal Instagram. 
That was before I got on. Yeah, and Mary said the same thing. She was like, oh my gosh, me too. I did, either Friday or Saturday. Mary is our podcast producer, everyone. And we were laughing about that. And then she said, I think it's because I'm reading How to Do Nothing. But anyways, the point is, when I am on Instagram, which don't worry, everyone, I'm not deleting it forever or leaving it, you know, and Lady Farmer has a presence there too. And we like to share there. But I say all this to say that when I am on Instagram, I like to be really intentional about the images that I'm consuming. And Farm and Folk, the account, you guys, so nurturing. Just her art is so beautiful. And she's so fun to follow and watch. And she has a really cool attitude, I'll call it, about creating for the internet and having an audience on the internet. And she's really kind of defensive about what she shares and her art because she says, I'm not here to tell you where I bought all the things that are in my house because that's not what I want to promote. I want to show you my quilts. I haven't seen a lot of influencers saying that, so... Yeah, we talk about that. And, you know, you're talking about your decision to take Instagram off your phone for a while. She talks a lot about the decisions they made over the years, she and her husband, from their young married life all the way through to now and moving forward. The decisions that they've just made along the way to keep their life simple and intentional and sustainable. And it's really a beautiful story. And it really shows in her art and her life. We hope that you are inspired by this conversation and that you'll come back every Friday for new interviews from the Good Dirt Podcast. Enjoy Sarah Buscaglia of Farm and Folk. I'm Sarah B. Spoke farmer and folk artist. I farm with my family in Durango, Colorado on a really small farm. We only have three acres. We grow food. That's the main thing. And uh, that's what I do in the summer times and in the springtime right now, we're really busy. And then in the rest of the part of the year, I work in my studio as a um, natural dyer and quilt maker. That's just one of the cool things about farming is it's, even though it's so busy when you're doing it, it does afford time in the off season to explore other things and have time for other things. That's the balance is farming and then quilt making and all that fun stuff. Tommy, my husband and I, we did not grow up farming. We both grew up in the suburbs. He in the suburbs of Chicago and I in the suburbs of Detroit. So we didn't have any sort of farming background whatsoever. It wasn't anything that we ever thought would happen to us. And so we met here in Durango. And when we met, we moved in together right away. And then our first house we rented was a place out in the country. And so we started a little garden there. And then our friend had lots of land that he, it was kind of like a hippie commune kind of thing. He gave everybody a little piece of his land to garden on and we built terraces. It was a very sloped property. So we each built terraces out of the stones. There was a lot of stones in the ground to work with that. And that was my first time ever growing anything at all. And we grew kale and chard and just things that I didn't even know what they were. That's how not a farmer I was. <laughs> and that was our first thing. And then one thing led to another and we just really fell in love with farming. And so every year our garden got bigger. And then we decided that was really what we wanted to do with ourselves. So on New Year's Day of 1999, I saw an ad in the classifieds for, we were looking for a house to rent on a farm. 
this one came up and it was out of our price range, but on a whim, I just decided to call the guy anyways and talk to him. And he just moved from California and bought this property here in Colorado and he advertised it as an organic farm. So I just thought, what the heck? I called him and talked to him and he said that it was his vision to have his land farmed and to offer it to people to farm. We couldn't afford the house, but he said no problem and just let us farm on his land. Didn't charge us rent or anything. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it was an amazing opportunity. And I want to say not just for us, but for him too, because he got to have his land farmed and his soil improved and yeah, yeah. really symbiotic. We stayed there for seven years on that property farming. On the eighth year, he came out to us and we were about to plant the garlic and he said that he wanted to let the land rest. That was in the fall. We we're oh no what are we gonna do but we had gone to the bank three years earlier to figure out the process of buying a home and so we had got a credit card and started building credit and all that so that was in 2005 so a few years before the whole like housing crash thing so it was still like an easy time to get a mortgage and stuff and so we did we looked at three properties we were in a hurry but we ended up finding our farm that we're on now. We've been there for 17 years. Yesterday was actually our farm anniversary. Um, oh my goodness. <laughs> 17 years on this place. We bought it because they, out here in the West, everything is about water. And this one had really good water rights. Although it's small, it's only three acres and it's really not a farm. It wasn't a farm at all when we bought it. It was just like in a neighborhood of houses with parcels of three acres each. It had never been farmed or anything like that, but we got like some truckloads of manure and plowed up the field. And on the day that we closed on the property, Tommy rented a tractor from the tractor shop and we broke ground and got our potatoes planted within a week. Oh my goodness. And then it was just go time. So that's how we got in. And so we were doing market farming at that time, market okay. gardening. We grew like an acre and a half market garden and sold everything down at farmer's market and had a CSA to get us through the springtime startup everything. And it's evolved a lot over the years. We got burnt out on farmer's market after doing it for 14 years. So we evolved into like just CSA. And right now we built a farm stand on the, at the front of the driveway. And so we just cater to our neighborhood and the neighborhoods around us. It works out pretty well for us with the other things that we do. Wow. What a story. You really like, you're like, yeah. you went from a non-farmer zero farmer till you farmed for what is that a total of 23 years now or something 26 years I think we've been at it oh my gosh yeah. wow and so when did you start being a folk artist and how does that sort of enter into it so it all just happened when I met Tommy he's a glass blower so he was blowing glass and at that time only really knew how to knit so I would like knit hats and stuff. I wasn't very good at it, I admit. But we would build up our wares and then take them down to festivals. So like Telluride Bluegrass Festival and stuff. And I'd just mm -hmm. sell my hats and we would make supplemental money that way. So that's how it started. And with making things, one thing leads to another. Our kids started to be born. I found myself home alone and lonely. He was commuting to the farm every day and we couldn't be there very much. Isaac, my son and I, he was too little. 
So I had time on my hands and my friend talked me into learning how to buying a sewing machine. And I learned how to sew by following garment patterns. And I started making all these clothes. And that's just how I got into sewing. And I made the kids' clothes over the years out of tablecloths and curtains and found things from the thrift store. How very Maria Von Trapp. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So we did that. And over the years, I had all these scraps and my scrap basket was just totally overflowing. And just on a whim, I decided to make a patchwork quilt from them, from all the scraps from my daughter's dresses that I had made her. And I completely fell head over heels in love with the process and got carried away with it. And despite the fact that I had been making clothes for the kids out of bound objects, I took a turn and overlooked my values there and went down this rabbit hole of like designer fabrics and started building up this total stash and (laughs) fell into that whole thing. And I was making quilts just because I was so in love with the process and the ability to express myself through shapes and textures and stitches and all of that. It just felt so freeing. In the end, I'd have these quilts made from like these really bright designer fabrics. And I had, I guess I skipped some of our story. Like I had been working with natural dyes since our son was in preschool. And I learned how to do that in Waldorf school that he went to. And completely fell in love with natural color. And we had sheep and I would shear them and wash the wool and card it and spin it and make sweaters for all of us out of it. So we had this real like organic, homegrown relationship to fiber and stuff. So that's where that turn I took with designer fabrics. It just didn't feel like authentic to our story. Mm -hmm. So it took me a while to figure that out and get back on track. And then it dawned on me that I should really try to apply my knowledge of natural dyes to cellulose fabrics. And as soon as I did that, I was making these quilts that felt so authentic to me. And I felt like they were telling my true story of us as farmers, like slow living kind of people. That's so beautiful. And so the whole story is almost like a quilt in and of itself. You and pulling all the pieces together and like this from this and that from that. And that was just so beautiful the way you told it. Oh, thank you. I want to ask you if you feel like what you just said about your art telling your story, if that's what you would call the definition of folk art. Talk about the idea of folk art. What is it? I think people have this maybe sense that it maybe represents some sort of naive expression of art or something, but I think it's more than that. What do you think it is? Yeah, it tells a story of a culture and a maker. And I guess I consider myself a folk artist because I didn't go to school. So I don't have that education part of it. And I don't want to say that I'm self-taught. I am, but I've learned through what so many other people have shared, through books that people have written and blog posts and workshops and all that. So I can't really totally consider it self-taught, I guess. I call that self-taught because you weren't following some prescribed curriculum like in a school or whatever, and you went and got the information that was relevant to you and put it together. I didn't go to school to be a writer, but I still consider myself a writer. (laughs) But it it is an interesting perspective to just acknowledge all the teachers along the way who I guess it happens sometimes and it's really magical. But I think rarely do we just come up with things completely originally on our own, right? Everything is an inspiration from something. Yeah, everything comes from somewhere, starts somewhere. Yeah, yeah. that's the magic of it's just 
it's a way of exploring the complexity of like the web of life. Everything intersects with something else somewhere. It does, yeah. And that leads me to the question of, I was looking at your website of all the beautiful quilting patterns that you've done and all the different names. And I don't know enough about quilting to know whether or not those are traditional patterns that have come from other people and other sources, or are those things you've created and named or a combination? It's a combination, really. Most of the stuff up until recently that I've made are all stemmed from traditional quilt blocks and quilt patterns that I don't necessarily follow a pattern when I'm making a quilt, but the blocks in themselves are traditional blocks, the ones that my grandma would work with and stuff like that. So when I'm coming up with a quilt to make, I'll usually start there, be inspired by a certain block and figure out a way that I could put it together in my own way or yeah but most almost all of them are traditional american kind of cool blocks that i can dissect on a piece of graph paper and identify all the shapes within the to try to come up with ways to get them in fabric form quilt form do you do that from pictures and books or do you collect old quilts yeah, just a little bit of everything, just things I see. My grandma's quilts are always like a place, but like Amish quilts and just any traditional old. Like when I'm looking for an idea, I often go to Pinterest and type in like antique quilts or things like that and see what comes up. Yeah, there's that can be done with just the traditional blocks. So your grandmother was a quilter. And my mom too is, and it's been in our family for as long as we can trace back I think that's amazing I was gonna ask because you really like you really started your story when you came to Colorado and you said you grew up what did you say you grew up in the suburbs of Detroit and then you've lived this really truly farm life taking wool and shearing it and washing it and carting it and dyeing it and knitting it it's like like the whole thing she's a lady farmer exactly (laughs) and it's interesting to me that a lot of people don't just a lot of people don't do that (laughs) and so I'm wondering what was your pre-coming to Colorado and in the suburbs did you have any sort of yearning to be closer to nature or did you feel like something was missing or did you grow up in the Waldorf system? What was your early exposure to that stuff or did it all just happen as you became a young Yeah, I came here because I had gone to, in three years, I had gone to, I'd, this was the fourth college that I enrolled in. I just couldn't find my happy place. And then I figured that coming here to this place in Colorado would be my happy place. And it was, but what it came down to was that school was not a happy place. Yeah. Finally, (laughs) accepting that and stop worrying about not taking the path that my parents wanted me to take. And I don't want to say that in a way because they had the best intentions. Of course. Everything they did was out of love, but it was hard for me to just have faith in myself that if I didn't do it that way, that I wouldn't be like an ultimate failure. So it was a huge leap of faith. And I did decide to take it after the first week of college here. And as soon as I did take that path of just that unknown, that It was scary because my parents, they stopped helping me financially at that point. And I'm really glad they did. And I'm really thankful that they did. I think that was like, it must have been so hard for them as parents to do that. But it helped me. I had to 
get my ducks in a row and figure out my life fast. And that's the best motivation is just having no choice but to do it. Yeah. So I did. And within two months, I met my husband. We started that whole life that I already explained. Yeah. But was he kind of the one with the farming like urge? Yin? <laughs> just sort of happened together? That's so interesting. Just happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we started gardening on our friend's land. And we did have some friends who were into farming and market farming. And it was a very new thing in Durango at the time. The farmer's market was very new. So we were, it was like right time, right place. We had these inspiring like hippie friends that were already doing it. And they were like our muses and we just went for it. We really didn't want to have jobs that we didn't want. And and so we just, yeah, I don't know. This was the one thing that it felt right. And it just happened. I can't remember ever <laughs> even pondering it. It just it was like this yeah, involuntary evolution. <laughs> That's so cool. And I get you pointed it out too, but really 1999, 2000. So my brother was at Hampshire College in Massachusetts. I guess that would have been 2007 or 8, mom. And that was the first time I heard, remember, and I think you too, that was the first time we were aware of the concept of a CSA. And my mom, like all growing up, so super crunchy, the weird one in the suburban Atlanta who was like, I'm shopping organic and we didn't have sugar in our house. I would consider my childhood to be more on the hippie side than most. And the farming, the market farming, the farmer's markets. Yeah. I don't think that came into my awareness until kind of the late aughts. And obviously in Colorado and the Northeast, I feel they were a decade ahead of us in the Southeast. And you didn't have Instagram or Pinterest or anything. It was just very in your orbit, which is really cool. Yeah. It was just our friends. We had a really close circle of friends and when our kids were born, like we really helped each other out. They were like friends that were like family. It was a tight little circle that we have. And looking back, I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. It was really amazing. Yeah. So you were doing CSA back in the late 90s. So we started our first CSA was probably when we bought the farm, I think was our first big one. So around 2005. I agree with you, Emma. That still sounds like really ahead of its yeah. time. According to us. <laughs> yeah, according to us. <laughs> Who are the, we, yeah. we, as you say, we're more oriented towards the Southeast. And my son was in college up in Massachusetts. And he said, I belong to this thing. And I was visiting one time and I went with him for pickup and I was just blown away. Oh my gosh. And that must have been about 2007. And that really lit a fire under me. And I remember her coming home and being like, and then we walked across behind his dorm. There's this field and we walked across it. And you just go and bring your bat and there's just vegetables. Yeah. (laughs) It really planted a seed. Isn't it crazy that in our lifetime and not even in our lifetime, but not that long ago, this was like a new and like novel concept. And just so like farm food. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it is. It's good. It's good that it's happening. And it's I guess it's happened fast, even though it seems slow and we still have so far to go. Yeah. Local food systems in a South Gate. It's good to look back and realize, no, it has come a little ways. Were your vegetables organic farming? Was Were you very intentional about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Always from the start. Yeah. And I didn't even know what organic farming meant until I moved here. We would buy organic produce from the co-op in town because that's where we shopped. But I didn't really understand the difference between organic and conventional until somebody said organic just means there's no pesticides. There's no like poison sprayed on it. And I was like, oh, gosh, like why would anyone ever eat poison? Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> was that a challenge for beginning farmers? Maybe it's less of a challenge if you don't know the other way. You just start in and... Yeah, we read books. That's how we learned how to farm. And we had a friend who went to college in Maine and he studied agriculture and biology. So he had more knowledge than we did that he shared with us. It had been a horse pasture, the first farm that we were on and ours, actually ours too. So there was, it wasn't like completely depleted land or anything, but we did bring in a lot of manure and we just read. And so you just Mm -hmm. do that and it just worked. That was even before YouTube University. So yeah. (laughs) YouTube you. Now you don't need a degree anymore. Mind blowing. (laughs) That was before farming TikTok. (laughs) You seem really gifted at zeroing in on your own intuition and authenticity. And and here you've landed in this lifestyle, in a persistent lifestyle, and it's stuck. And so can you speak to the intersection of farming and art? Because it just all seems to come so from a deep place into you and how they contribute to each other at all. It's just to me, it's all the same. Like farming is art and art is farming. It's all the same. It all comes from the same place. It's all alchemy. It's magic. It's like the alchemy of putting seeds in the soil and then like rain and sun and starlight, moonlight photosynthesis it's the purest form of magic that it can ever possibly if you don't believe in magic plant a seed and watch it grow and then become your food like it's such a magical concept and in art at least like the medium that i work with organic cotton and fabrics and then plant dyes which all come from seeds and soil it's all the same thing it's all the same to me do you grow your own dye plants This year, I have a whole bunch started, and we plan on turning a third of our field into a dye garden this year and offering certain dye stuffs as an offering that'll be on my website eventually. It's something that I'm working towards. It was just like an idea that was planted, and I decided to go for it. So I've got like thousands of dye plants started. Now I've got matter and weld, wood. And still haven't planted any indigo. I don't know that I really want to commit to growing indigo from scratch when there's so many wonderful people doing that that I can support and not yeah. worry about that whole process. But yeah, and then like calendula and scabiosa and all kinds of different Hopi sunflowers and things like that. So I think I already said that. But yeah, so I plan on expanding on that. But there will always be plants that I buy. To work with because I don't want to limit myself to not being able to have certain colors that I really love, like love. Mm-hmm. Yes. I want to be able to have an expansive palette. I love dyeing too, and I love logwood. That's one of my favorites because it's really dependable. You can always get a great deep color out of that. (laughs) Yeah, and black is one of my favorites. I don't know how I would make black without logwood. Do you have black walnut trees around you? Don't, but a friend recently came through town and she was visiting. She had been in the east, the southeast, somewhere in the Carolinas, I think, and she brought back three shopping bags full of them. So I have them sitting in my studio. I haven't had the time to work with them yet, but I'm looking forward to it. They make a really beautiful brown, gray kind of. Yeah. And if you leave it long enough, it'll do black. Okay. I found that out by accident. (laughs) We learned the best things, I think. I know. (laughs) There was a bucket of it out. I was doing some stuff last fall and there was a 
bucket of it out in the yard that somebody had dropped a like a napkin in and I didn't know it was in there. There was a bunch of us dying one day. I didn't know it was in there. And I was out there cleaning up like weeks later, weeks. And I said, oh, this thing is in here. And it was really black. Oh, that was nice. It was beautiful. Yeah. And that black walnut dye, you can just put a bunch of walnuts in and bucket and cover it with water and just leave it. And I did this too. And it sat around literally years. I didn't dump it out because I thought I'm going to use that someday. And lo and behold, a friend of mine said, I want to dye this thing brown. And I said, have at it. There's this bucket that's been sitting there probably four years. And she used it. It was beautiful. Oh, that's it's a, but we have so many black walnut trees. It's crazy. Yeah. I can look out my window here and count a dozen of them. You can roll your ankle on them very easily. <laughs> yeah, they're great. Do you have animals? I don't anymore. So I had the sheep when the children were little. Oh, yeah. Phased out of that feeding them. Our farm is too small. If we could grow hay, it would work. But hay was, it was just not economical, I figured. And I don't think that everything should be based on whether it's economical or not. If it's bringing you joy, especially if you can afford it. But yeah, I got into other things too. Once I got into quilting, I just wanted to do that. Yeah. Well, we have chickens. I like to have eggs in the farm stand. And we've got some dogs that I'm constantly trying to scale back on because I had one of them and they got really out of control and tried to take over the farm. <laughs> and yeah, I got them down to five last year and then they had a bunch of ducklings. <laughs> when you say you got them down, did you eat them? I gave them to a friend. Okay. She took all the females because they love the eggs. And then, and they, I think they harvested the ducks too eventually. And then I don't know the boys. I put them on Facebook. It's only humans at the. <laughs> aren't ducks pretty good for, don't they scare away some? Like, I know they have predators, but aren't they good for like, keeping their noisy things out and they're noisy? Yeah. Yeah. I got them and they were beautiful. They're this, I had 45 Indian runner ducks and they're so pretty. And oh, it was because so of YouTube, because I saw this on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. This farm in South America, or no, it was in South Africa. And it was this beautiful vineyard and they had like over a thousand ducks that would be released out into the field, into the vineyard every day. And they'd eat all the bugs. And it was like, yeah, they like, like thing that I saw. I was like obsessed with it. And it was like, we were growing hemp at the time. And I was like, we're going to have ducks that eat the bugs off the hemp plants. And we put them in the field one day and they like trampled all the plants and it was a disaster. So it was not idyllic. It just didn't work. <laughs> well, that's like me the first year or two that we were here, I had read that guinea hens ate ticks. Oh. And we have a real problem with ticks here. So I thought, oh, hi, I found the solution. And so I went and got it. don't need any chemicals or yeah. spray. <laughs> Just guinea hens. <laughs> so <laughs> went and raised these guinea hens. And it's quite a thing to raise them to not fly away. You keep them in for so many weeks and then you let them out for periods of day. So we went through this whole thing. and. They grew to adulthood and they were just gorgeous and they're really sunny and they're really loud <laughs> and we fell in love with them and, but they were all eat in one night. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. A raccoon or a fox or something just. Yeah. There was, I guess, six of them. Well, yeah, we have that with skunks and raccoons. Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't gotten any more guinea hens. I'd like to try it again. I just don't know how to keep the predators away from them. And they're funny. They're very territorial. So they're not trained right to go into shelter. They they will not. And then they'll get eaten. Yeah. It's hard. But like you say, other things come along that you want to be doing. <laughs> yeah, training the guinea hens. But 
I sure would like to have a solution to the tick problem that we have. But yeah, that's a big deal for you guys out there. But then, then you guys have like water. So it's yeah, we all have our. Yeah, we have plenty of water. So. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about your hemp adventure. We're very interested in that. I can't remember how long we did it. We did it for maybe five years and it was like CBD hemp. So it wasn't fiber hemp. Gosh, it would be dreamy to be able to do if we could find like processing to be able to grow fiber. Yes. And oh, yeah. We grow our quilts from scratch. That would be so cool. But yeah, the processing part is, I don't even know where to begin with that. Yeah. So we did the CBD thing and it just in that market became. It was like a gold rush, right? Like where everybody's yes. on that bandwagon and it's over. So I don't, it was never great for us, but it was fun. It was fun to grow hemp out in the field. It looks just like marijuana. You cannot tell the difference between it. So just out the field of hemp out there was so rebellious, fun. Yeah. <laughs> was it good for the soil? Like you hear so much about how good it is for the soil. To like help your soil? I don't know. We've fed it compost and stuff. Yeah, we haven't tilled that section of the field since we started growing hemp there. And we've done a lot of cover cropping. He cut the cover crop down last fall. It was really tall. And we just looked at it the other day and it's like such a thick mat of vegetation. So that's been good for the soil. Is the hemp still there? Is it, is it growing wild? Did it seed itself and come back? No, it's like an annual, it's an annual crop that you have to plant. There. So it doesn't reseed itself when you let it go, huh? It could if that happened, but since they are male and female plants, so you try to only grow the females to get those flowers. You don't want them to pollinate or you'll end up just getting a lot of seeds everywhere. So you are in Colorado, and that was the first state to yeah, allow it. Yeah, Colorado spent, I think it was like 2008, so we can barely, and I remember what it was like when it was still, the cannabis was illegal, but it was so long ago now that it's getting harder to remember what that was like. The days of prohibition are over. Yeah. <laughs> Emma and I, in the early years of Lady Farmer, went to the NOCO, Northern Colorado NOCO Hemp Conference. And I think they still have it. It was right outside Denver. And I remember that there was this whole room full of people. This guy stood in the front of the room and said, how many of you are here to grow CBC? And like CBD. Yeah, I see CBD. Every hand in the room went up, this whole auditorium. And how many of you here are interested in hemp as a textile? Emma and I go, we weren't in a position to grow it, but we were very interested. And he said, you know, there are a lot of you out there that want to do CBD, but this the textile thing is like wide open. It's wide open field. But to your point, of course, and now with the farm bill and everything, and it became easier to grow it, not easy, still a ton of paperwork, but there's no processing. So it really hasn't evolved very yeah. much at all. Yeah. So we're just, we lost a lot of momentum. We were really in that because that was, we were in light. We were like, we are going to make clothes out of American grown hemp. Yeah. I wanted to talk about quilting again. I'm just really interested in, obviously, for anyone who hasn't seen it, your work is so beautiful and mm-hmm. I just love it. And I love following along and you're so generous with sharing about your process and what you're doing and what you're working on. And I guess I'm just curious, 
Do you sell your quilts? Tell me about your quilting practice. And Yeah, so it started up as just like how I told you earlier, just making the quilts. And then once I got into the plant dyeing ones and the ones that felt like authentic to me and they were like really telling my story, then I started saving those. Like I was not giving those ones away to get them out of my house because they didn't, the first ones I made just didn't feel and they didn't look right in my house. But then once I had those plant dyed ones, they were starting to stockpile. And so, but when I had a stack of 10 of them and then people on Instagram started asking if I sold them. And so I built a website on just like a template one, like Squarespace. And I built it and then I didn't actually like launch it for about a year and a half because that's how long it took me to build up the confidence to do it really. But I did and I sold quilts on there and wow, how it's happened. Like they've just... People have bought them and they sell and so then I can keep making them. And That's awesome. Yeah. So it seems like you do what you're inspired by and what you have time for, <laughs> but it doesn't seem like you're like in the business of providing quilts for people. Like they're art pieces that you make available. You do commissions, don't you? Yeah, I did start taking commissions again. I didn't like doing that at first because I just didn't have the confidence in myself that I would be able to make just the right thing. I just wanted to have the freedom of just making what I like and then if someone buys it, great. But I feel like recently I took on commissions again and I'm writing a book right now with Abrams. So that's been my main focus over the past year is working on that. Yeah. What's that about? Tell us about your book. Yeah. So it's about natural dyes. There'll be a two parts. So natural dyes and on specifically on cellulose fabrics. Because when I first started dyeing cellulose fabrics, I felt like there was limited information. A lot of the recipes are written and most of the traditional ones that are available the historical ones are more for silk and wool. So it took me a long time to dial in getting even results on cellulose and just getting like nice, strong, lasting colors and stuff like that. So I just wanted to share just in the spirit of reciprocity, what I've learned through people who have written books. I wanted to write this one just to give back a little bit of what I've learned through what other people have shared. And through a lot of experimenting, I think my most valuable knowledge and lessons have come through experimenting and notes, a lot of really good note-taking and remember yeah. to stop and take notes. Yeah. And then uh, there will also be some folk patterns. But basically what I want to share in the book is that, because a, a lot of people ask me if I sell patterns for the quilts on my website. And since I don't work from patterns, I don't have patterns. So I just want to explain like how to make a quilt without that just from scratch. Yeah. Do you ever do improvisational quilting? I do. Yeah. It's getting easier for me, that whole letting go and going with it. Yeah. I made one recently and it was really fun. It was more fun than like, I, when I first did it. I just felt like my head might explode. I just need to make the blocks and sew them together. Yeah. So yeah, I'm finding that and I'm been getting more books on that. Once my book is done, I'll have more time to explore those. Yeah, I took an improvisational quilting class last spring and made a quilt. It was so fun. Similar to you, I've been stockpiling fabric. And now I want to try the patterns because I feel like I know how it all works now. Using patterns, like that's how I learned how to garment sew. And I think that's a great way to start too. Yeah. Sarah, do you know Marley that we interviewed? Marley. 
Grace? She's a quilter. She's on Instagram. She has a really cool account. She's a quilter and a dancer. She's a really cool account called Personal Practice. That's very, she doesn't write too much personal on there. It's just her dancing. And for a while, she would post like a video every day of her dancing. Yeah. And she's a quilter and she's who I took the class from. And we have an episode with her as well, where we talk all about quilting. Yes. And you might be interested in the Cookie Washington episode. Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. It's a quilting muralist. Is that what? Yeah, she does. Yeah. They're really like art museum pieces. She quilts goddesses and a lot of African Black Madonna type stuff. Yeah. Her, the centerpiece for her art is the sacred feminine. And that's what she expresses in her quilts. And it's, we had a fascinating interview with her too. So, (laughs) another thing that I love about following you and just seeing through your storytelling is the way that you, Talk about, I guess for lack of a more specific way to put this, consumerism and the way that we consume content on Instagram, but also like the way that we consume products and things and sustainability and this lifestyle. And you are someone who has found this really beautiful way to express what you want to do. But I can see through what you're doing. You're like, I want to talk about this and I want to show you this thing. I don't want to talk about all these other things that... Do you see what I'm saying here? Yeah. yeah. I guess I'm just interested in digging into that a little bit and your feelings on all of that. Part of why I talk about that is because I fell into that whole thing. Like I was duped by that whole thing. So when we redid our kitchen, I felt like everybody was asking me these questions and I was sharing pictures. And of course, when you share pictures, it just opens an opportunity for questions and stuff. So then I was like, maybe I just shouldn't show pictures of my house because if I don't want those questions and but then it's also the other side of that is my house is kind of part of my art too and yeah I share that without having to answer sourced like where did you get this where did you get that I don't know but when I did my kitchen then I did I offered an opportunity because I was getting so many dms and questions that I said I'll just do a post and get all the questions over with all at once let's just get it out of the way and then through the some women said to me, some friends, wow, that's so generous. I wouldn't want to share all those details personally. And I was like, I don't really want to share them either. But I don't know. I just felt this like obligation. Like you had to. Yeah. That's what people do. And that's where I put two and two together and was like, no. And my friends helped me. That's what influencers do. And that's their job. They get deals from the tile companies and from the sinks. and Yeah. And that's work in itself. I can't imagine calling the tile store and like setting that whole thing up. That would take a lot of time because that's their job and that's what these people do, but that's not my job. And so then when I advertise sinks and tiles and stuff that I pay full price for, I'm essentially being a salesperson. Yeah. And, And that's not my job. That's not what I'm on Instagram for. I'm there to just share my farming, my quilts, and I am there yeah. to have quilts and things like that. I'll happily answer any questions regarding quilts and yeah, things like that. But yeah, it took me a while to figure that out and know that I've figured it out with a little help from my friends. <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't want to go back on it because like I said, like when the kids were little and I made them clothes out of tablecloths and things, it was because I was taking an active stance against consumerism. Like I didn't yeah. want to buy new fabric and I didn't want to buy them clothes from big box kind of stores and which other people are being exploited 
for us to have those things. Yeah. It was always like a, a peaceful protest, a form of peaceful protest. And so then I just want to keep it that way straight across the board in all aspects of my page, if I can. Yeah, I find it really interesting. I don't know if I've ever seen that kind of clear, specific messaging from anyone else, because I think you're right. I think most people are just thinking that's what they're supposed to do on Instagram. And so they do it. It's not It's what I felt. And I didn't really question. It was just like, and then I felt like a jerk. If I'm not answering the questions or just ignoring them, then I don't know, I would feel a little bad about it. Yeah. And I shouldn't feel bad about it. Nobody should feel bad about it. If that's not what you're there for, then that's not what the you're there for and you, you should be back yeah. I love the way that your art and also your farming and all that, all how that's integrated. You are giving people a look at an alternative to consumerism. You're using organic fabrics. You are using hand-dyed fabrics. You're doing these things by hand. You're a, a maker. You're an authentic maker and you're reflecting your own self and all that. So you really represent that beautifully. Thank you. And what I want to ask you is, given the magnitude of all the problems on the planet right now that are caused in large part by our rampant consumerism, especially in the area of textile and fashion and the areas you work in, do you think individual consumer decisions will be enough to affect a real change? Or do you think it's something that really needs to come from the top down, more corporate paradigm shifting? We might talk about that. I think that the way that capitalism works, like we all talk such bad things about capitalism and we should because it, it, I do believe it's really bad and greedy based on greed. But the thing that's often overlooked is that it's the consumers who drive all these markets. We have so much power with our dollar that every dollar we spend is a vote cast. And so, yes, we could collectively all say... We could end fast fashion in an instance if we stopped buying it because it cannot go on at all if people stop buying it. If people stop buying it, then it's over just like that. And of course, that void will be filled with whatever else is next. I don't think that like green fashion is the answer. I think that just not consuming more than what we need is the answer. And that if collectively we could get on that, and that, that's part of why I don't share things on my page because I don't want people to look at my shoes and feel like they want to go buy those shoes. I don't, it's not what I'm there for. And it's everything I stand against. And I think that on a collective level, we have so much more power than we realize or that we can admit. And I'd love to see it happen through legislature and from the top, bottom, and every way, I'd like to see it happen. But yeah, as consumers, we could make a big change, but we have to work together at it and just stop. Just stop yeah. overconsumption on all levels. Yeah, we've had so many guests recently say that exact same thing. I guess it's obvious to those of us that are in the space. Yeah. But I just keep hearing that over and over at it's evolved from a point where early on in Lady Farmer, we were like, everybody does their part and we do things in what small way we can, which is absolutely true. Yeah. But I see it shifting to more of a more a more radical stance. Let's, we just need to stop. We need to yeah. stop. We need to stop. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, 
And I think that's really the only solution is for people to realize that we need to stop and that if we want it to stop, then we just make it stop. Yeah. Like we're talking about this right now, but it's not the hot topic. And like I said, living here is like living in a bubble. When we leave the bubble, it's often like shocking and alarming. The TVs are telling us to bye, 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 bye. And when we have the message coming at us from every angle, whether it's the TV or Instagram, whatever it is, it's really hard to think outside of those realms. But eventually, yeah. like you said, if we never heard of CSAs in the early 2000s, and now everybody, like a lot of yeah. people, things do change. But the way it yeah. is that it's not going to happen over. Yeah. Are your children very small? And how do you think they're, I'm sure you're imparting your values to them. How are they interacting with the world as future consumers? So they are, they're pretty grown. They're between. 22 they're 22 20 18 and 13 oh the ones that are grown my, my kids are so funny they are like perpetual ragamuffins like so the three oldest are boys and they wear like the gnarliest dirtiest stuff, like sweatshirts and they don't care one bit about what they wear and when i read those statistics on like fashion and if everybody would just wear their shirt like eight times instead of three times or whatever yeah. ridiculous statistic is before throwing it away then we could save 30 percent for going into the landfill <laughs> oh my gosh like yeah we wear our things like hundreds and hundreds of times until they're so threadbare that they can't possibly be mended and then we put them in the compost if they can be yeah yeah they're not consumers <laughs> <laughs> you haven't had any teenagers coming along that was rebelling against that at all no they really they woman and it's wow what are they when my kids rebel they bring home like a king-size bag of m&ms and i'm like <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> do you know what in that all those colors and that's about as far and like bars like that's as far as they don't really have anything to rebel against i guess it's good <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think related to this and the idea of stopping, I like to think that's part of slow living. And so I'm wondering what you think about slow living and how you embrace that concept in your life. Yeah, double slow food, slow living. I don't know. It's just our life. It's planting seeds. And farming is like the best teacher of slowness and patience. And yeah, just planting those seeds and bringing them to harvest and then canning and eating them all winter. Everything has slow. Like right now I'm writing a book and someone was like, well, that's such a year long process. And to me, like a year is nothing. It's just, I don't know. We're just in a world of things that take time, our existence here and what we do. It's all just slow. Everything. Yeah. Building a fire and keeping it going throughout the winter and stacking the wood and it's all very slow. Yes. A lot of people we talk to, they want to try it. Or it's something they're working towards. Yeah, they come to this hectic lifestyle. And it, yeah. what impresses me about you is that... You're just like, no, just that's you. how I be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We just got lucky when we were so young. We met, Tommy and I met when we were, I was 20 and he was 21. And yeah, it was just like a decision that we made that we would do whatever we could to not have to go to jobs that we didn't like. And we got lucky. Joined the rat race. Yeah, it's a real look at where we are now, even just in the past two years, like with the whole great resignation thing. And I think that is just starting to come into the mainstream conversation of what are we spending our lives doing? Yeah. Again, like yeah. you are so lucky to have kind of that have had that 
revelation so early on. And also the like courage, I think really courage and fight and resilience to stick with it too. Because as you mentioned before, it is really weird and (laughs) disarming to have it be so like countercultural and not go along with the narrative at all. It's really confusing. So that's super cool that you were able to find the community too. It makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge part of it for sure. Yeah. And I think follow your own inner guidance. Yeah. You talked about that at the beginning. Yeah. So what does the good dirt mean to you, either literally or metaphorically, or just talk about that a little bit? That word just makes me think of, give me the good dirt. Tell me a good story, which is what you Yeah. And yeah, like good dirt or good soil. I've always been taught like to call it soil. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's not dirt. Yeah. Yeah, It's the same thing. And I think that's like such an important human responsibility right now is to make the soil good again to bring it back to life and that we totally have the ability to it is not i don't know there's all these doom and gloom stories of oh all the topsoil is dead and dying but i just know for a fact that we can bring it back and it's going to be a lot of hard work but it's not impossible by any means the earth is like any living thing that wants to heal and if we give it the chance and the opportunity, then it's going to happen. Oh, I agree so much. And if everybody just went out in their own backyard or even in their windowsill or whatever, if everybody just did a little something, yeah, it would happen very quickly. It really would. We just need that conscious mind shift. Yeah. Like what we're saying, if everybody stopped buying things and everybody did a little something to heal the dirt, then we'd be all good. <laughs> yeah. And it's not as hard as we is it is in our heads. <laughs> When you actually set out to do it, it's not. Yeah, we're all overwhelmed by the enormity of these systems and the problems in the systems. And there's so much talk and conversation about all these systemic problems. And really, the solutions are simple and at hand. It's just everybody understanding what we need to do, I think. It is. Actually. And the importance of it all. Yeah. And something that's that's clicking for me right now is as part of that overwhelm, I think a lot of the overwhelm is things that we feel like we need to buy or things that we feel like we need to participate in. <laughs> yeah. And so I wonder if the more we take that off our plates. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to own real estate. You don't like just yeah. there's things that like we've been told and programmed. You don't have to buy sustainable fashion. Yeah. You don't have to buy. <laughs> you really don't. You, <laughs> you don't have to by and we things. use it as a replacement for fast fashion like have sustainable fashion and then consume it in the yes. way that we know just yeah it's not it's just yeah so talk about the word sustainability and i think that it's such an over misused word and that mm. it's probably just define sustainability before anybody's even really allowed to put that label or yeah use it mm. sustainable something that can be sustained eternally right yeah is any form of fashion really sustainable yeah and something we talk about sometimes on here is do we want to sustain what's happening right now because i think we need to move beyond even sustainability because that's true something that's regenerative and life-giving yeah in closing is there anything else that you feel like you wanted to chat about today or i like to ask what is it that you most want the audience to understand about the work that you do it's just all connected it's all one it's all the same it's ever evolving tommy and i talk about it often how proud we are but hopefully that doesn't sound like we a poopster but uh, that's okay you're allowed to (laughs) 
of just that everything we've achieved has come through agriculture and through growing things from soil and seeds. Yeah. It hasn't come from exploitation on any level. And it feels good to go to sleep at night and not have that overhead. Yeah. That's wonderful. So where can people find you and interact with you in whatever way you would like to invite? <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm mostly on Instagram at Farm and Folk, and my website is the same, Farm and Folk. And your book will be, when's your book coming out? We don't have a publishing date yet, but probably about okay. a year from now, I think, is when it will be. Cool. Next spring, summer. Is there a title yet? There's not. Yeah, it'll be okay. Urban Folk something. I'm still trying to come up with it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love I'm the day Farm and Folk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which I love that a lot. On a whim. I was spinning wool, actually. I was like, that's it. And <laughs> how about your logo? I love your, is it a jackalope? It is, yeah. So my friend Aaron, his tag is unto dust, but he's designed that for me. It's great. Yeah. Is there any symbolism with the jackalope? No, I just really love the rabbit and putting the antlers on it just felt kind of bulky feel. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. also weird. There's really no thought involved in much thought involved. Yeah. <laughs> I like it because my grandpa always says, jackrabbits. I don't know why he says that. Oh, he does. That's my favorite. And we have a lot of them here. And I just think that they're the best ever. What's the context that he says jackrabbits? Hopping around like a bunch of jackrabbits. Yeah. <laughs> it's a description of chaos. Yeah. Usually <laughs> involving children. But, yeah. but anyway, so thank you so much for talking with us today. I've so enjoyed just a peek into your life. And so many of the things resonate and are so much about what we talk about on this show. And just thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. And wonderful to connect with you guys. Have a great day. <laughs> thank you for tuning in to the Good Dirt Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll share it with a friend to spread the good dirt. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye. <laughs>